Some people have suggested the biologist and gender studies theorist Anne Fausto-Sterling is an example, that there may be more than two sexes. She once suggested that there are at least five. And just to add to the confusion, it's often said, again, Fausto-Sterling is a source for this, that a significant proportion of the population is intersex, neither male nor female. So being neither male nor female is supposedly as common as having red hair close to 2% of the population. So anyway, all that, according to me, is just completely wrong. There's no, <laughs> there's no truth to that whatsoever. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. I'm Aaron Sarin, and I write about China, the country's politics, culture, economics, etc. Also the great ongoing human rights struggle against the Communist Party. I have a new piece in Persuasion titled, Is China Capable of Attacking Taiwan? We've heard a lot about the threat that China poses to Taiwan, and I've written about it several times myself. It really seemed like an invasion could be imminent, and the Taiwanese election this January seemed like it could be a potential trigger for such an invasion, but it hasn't happened, despite the fact that Beijing's least favourite candidate won the election. Beijing has been surprisingly quiet. I argue that this is because Chinese President Xi Jinping has his hands full. There's the fast-declining economy, the demographic disaster, but there's also the issue of corruption within the military. It turns out, for instance, that some of the Chinese army's nuclear missiles are full of water, not fuel, which suggests that army personnel were not taking Xi Jinping seriously when he spoke about war. This would seem to be the likely reason for the otherwise unexplained purge of 14 leading military figures in late 2023. I argue that the danger hasn't disappeared, she still intends to unify Taiwan with China, but he's been stymied by the unexpected corruption of the Chinese army. There was an invasion date, and it's probably been delayed. Now, China's facing certain decline, and there's some historical precedent for big declining authoritarian powers going to war out of sheer desperation, like Germany in 1914, like Japan in 1941. So the danger's still very real, and China's troubles could push the president in either direction. We just have to hope that the job of rebuilding things at the head of the military is a long and difficult one, and that China's various internal challenges take up all Xi's attention for his remaining years. So once again, this essay is titled, Is China Capable of Attacking Taiwan? Published on Persuasion, and my name is Aaron Sarin. Aaron Sarin's article, Is China Capable of Attacking Taiwan? was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion, and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community. My guest today is Alex Byrne. Alex is a professor of philosophy at MIT and the author of a new book called Trouble with Gender. Today, we try to make sense of some of the basic questions about sex and gender that are confusing a lot of people and increasingly dividing public opinion we thought about what it is to be a biological male, whether we can clearly categorize all people into being biological males or biological females, and how that story might be complicated by people who have so-called intersex conditions. We talked about what the notion of gender means and in what context it helps to illuminate or does not help to illuminate our social reality. And finally, we thought about how it is that we can build a society that is respectful of transgender people while being conscious of some of the difficult trade-offs involved in things like puberty blockers for young teenagers or 
questions about under what circumstances trans women should be able to compete in competitive female sports. Alex Byrne, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, sure. Thanks very much for having me. So you've just published a new book called Trouble with Gender. It's a very interesting book in itself. There's also an interesting backstory here where it was meant to be published by one of the premier academic presses in the world, but there was a kind of rebellion against it. What happened in this process and what was so unusual about it? So I became interested in the general topic of sex and gender a few years ago, and I'd written a few things for a popular audience about it on whether sex is socially constructed Uh, whether well, sex is binary. And a book was brewing. I thought a, a general interest book was needed on this, on this topic, treating the issues from a, a philosophical perspective. And so I shopped around various publishers. Of course, I knew the whole topic was, was radioactive. It's kind of one, of one of the third rails at the moment in the academy and outside. And I'd published a scholarly monograph, as we say, with Oxford University Press before on self-knowledge, and I had a great experience with them. And anyway, to cut long story short, eventually OUP gave me a contract, Oxford University Press, and they were very enthusiastic about the book, and they said they would promote it for a general audience. And then I started to write the book in, in, in 2021 with the, with the OUP contract, And then various things happened in the interim. So one thing that happened was that there was a big fuss, a protest over OUP's publication of another book on sex and gender by the University of Melbourne philosopher Holly Lawford-Smith. This was called Gender Critical Feminism. And Oxford, to their great credit, faced down this protest quite well, but it's very likely that they were spooked by the whole episode. And after that, I had an invited chapter on pronouns, as in he, she, they, them, cancelled by Oxford University Press, which was extremely unusual, basically unheard of. You don't invite someone to write unpaid a chapter in a, an Oxford University Press handbook and then refused to publish the chapter without allowing the author to make any revisions. Anyway, that's exactly what happened. In my case, one of the editors of the handbook actually announced that they would not be publishing my chapter on, on Twitter. So the whole, the whole thing was just completely outrageous. So that happened. And then Holly, had, Holly Lawford-Smith had run into some other problems with OUP when she was working on her second book, again on, on sex and gender, called Sex Matters. My book was cancelled by OUP fairly soon after I submitted it in 2022. And uh, as you know, what normally happens is that you get a contract to write a book with, with an academic press, you submit a draft, you then get uh, reviews back from expert reviewers, you then make revisions and the process maybe iterates a few times and eventually the book is published. It's extremely rare for the book not to be published. It's even rarer for the draft manuscript to be rejected without inviting any revisions whatsoever. Uh, that is what happened in my case. 
what was the stated logic here? What is it that Oxford University Press said was wrong with the book? Or I, I presume they didn't say this violated uh, taboo of ours. They said somehow the work was shoddy or not up to standard. Well, they said that, and let me see if I can remember the quote. There was just one line in the rejection email uh, to the effect that the book didn't treat the subject in a sufficiently serious and respectful way. That was it. So there were no examples given of this lack of respect or lack of seriousness. And the claim about lack of seriousness was particularly annoying because uh, you'll see if you've, you've looked at the book, you'll notice that there are a huge number of endnotes and um, a massive list of references. So the, the, the idea that I didn't treat the subject seriously is, is a little ludicrous. Well, and ordinarily what, what happens in academic publishing, whether it's for articles or whether it's for books of university presses, is that there's anonymous external reviewers. And in the case where a work is turned down, which is very frequent in the case of academic uh, articles, less often if you already have a book contract for a university press, you would usually get the report from those examiners, which should contain specific and clear reasoning as to what is not up to standard about the work. And it sounds like this was not included here. I did get some referee reports. I can't remember how many. I think it was four. One in particular was extremely positive. At least one was quite negative. But the stated reason for rejecting the book had absolutely nothing to do with the content of any referee reports. I mean, they weren't referred to. Nothing was identified in the book as particularly problematic. There was no reference to any specific poor argument that I'd made or a specific error that I had committed. And I think it was clear why OUP didn't try to say, didn't try to argue their way into rejecting the book, because of course, then I, I would have had an opportunity to say, oh, I, I don't agree for this reason, or this is not very convincing, or this referee is wrong, and so on. But I wasn't, I wasn't given that opportunity. I think it was clear that they just didn't want to publish the book. So the easiest thing to do would be just to make this blanket, vague condemnation of the book about not treating the subject with sufficient respect. I mean, what can you do when, when, when faced with that criticism? You can't like point to a chapter and say, well, there you go. You, this criticism is, is wrong. It's very vague and, and subjective. And OUP gave no examples whatsoever no specific examples whatsoever of instances where I'd been disrespectful or unserious. Well, thankfully, the book was picked up by Polity, and it is now out in the United Kingdom and the United States. Let's delve into this subject, which is an important one, but does deserve to be treated with seriousness. Uh, and it's one that I think has a lot of people understandably confused. So why don't we start with a very basic set of questions about what is biological sex and what is the notion of gender and how are those similar or different? Why is it that we need this additional category of gender in order to make sense of the world? To start with biological sex, there's a chapter in the book called Clownfish and Chromosomes, which is all about biological sex. I mean, there's a huge amount of confusion on this topic, both in philosophy and gender studies, which I try to unravel in that chapter. And as far as the question, what is sex, goes, here I just lean on 
the absolutely standard textbook account of what the two sexes are. In a nutshell, to be male is to have a body plan that is designed to produce small gametes, sex cells, sperm, and to be female is to have a body plan that's designed to produce large gametes or sex cells, i.e. eggs. This distinction between male and female has, has nothing in particular to do with primary or secondary sex characteristics like having a penis or having a vagina or having, having breasts. It has nothing to do with having XX chromosomes over uh, versus XY chromosomes. There are plenty of sexed animals, of course plants also come in sexes, that have no, no sex chromosomes at all. So in, instead, the relevance of sex chromosomes is simply, in the case of mammals, to be the, the mechanism by which organisms come to be male and female in the first place. It's part of the sex, sex determination mechanism. Other animals have different sex determination mechanisms. I mean, some animals have temperature-dependent de sex determination mechanisms. Depending on the temperature, the ambient temperature when the eggs hatch, that's going to determine whether the animal pops out as male or female. So that's what the two sexes are. That is straightforward, even though if you read the philosophical or gender studies literature, sex, according to that literature, is often portrayed as this sort of confusing melange of traits like chromosomes, hormones, genitalia, and so on. And sometimes people say, well, you know, which ones we pick to define the sexes depends on the context, perhaps also on our political aims. Further, some people have suggested uh, the biologist and gender studies theorist Anne Fausto-Sterling is an example that there may be more than two sexes. She once suggested that there are at least five and just to add to the confusion, it's often said, again, Fausto Sterling is a source for this, that a significant proportion of the population is intersex, neither male nor female. So being neither male nor female is supposedly as common as having red hair, close to, close to 2% of the population. So anyway, all that, according to me, is just completely wrong. Like there's no, there's no truth to that whatsoever. Help me puzzle through this for a moment. So in general, my philosophical commitments are such that we can't cut nature by its joints, which is to say that how we classify things will always depend on the kinds of purposes which the classification serves. And that insight, I think, is a limited one. It doesn't get, we don't get nearly as much out of that as some radical deconstructionists, but it's an important one, right? So I don't think, for example, this is a sort of silly example I often use of undergraduates, there's no correct concept of tea. To an English speaker, a tea may contain some amount of tea, no caffeine, um, so it may be black tea or green tea, but it may also be chamomile tea or peppermint tea, even for those don't contain any Tea in. in the French conception of tea, it is uh, bound to that class of drinks, which uh, is an infusion which contains 
tea and caffeine. So for them, they would call a chamomile tea or peppermint tea a tisane, and they don't think of that as part of the same category of drink. Now, I don't think there's an objective way of determining what the better way is of using the term tea. One is more useful when you think about it being the afternoon, you've had a big lunch and you need a stimulant to wake up a little bit. The other is more useful when it's a cold winter day and you just want to offer your guests something to warm up, right? If we generally... Well, I guess what would you say? You may not share the general skepticism to somebody who is a little bit skeptical in general about sort of saying there's one and one only way of defining a term. Because I might listen to what you were saying and say, all right, that's a very interesting distinction that there is this consistent difference in which animals produce small sex cells in which animals produce large sex cells. And that certainly is one important distinction. But why is it that we should use that distinction as the basis of a difference between a bi being a biological male rather than a biological female, rather than the kind of characteristics that we would often think of in ordinary context, including in some of the heated political debates right now, as being particularly important, which is things like, what are your primary sex characteristics? Do you have a penis or a vagina? That's an excellent question, and you raised quite a number of different things. So one is the cutting nature at the joints idea. I think that goes back, that metaphor goes back to Plato, if I'm recalling correctly. I don't think this is really central to your, to your point, but philosophers typically do think that there is such a thing, <laughs> that some things cut nature at the joints and other things don't cut nature at the joints, or maybe this is a this is a comparative matter. So, for example, we have the category of gold, let's say, and we have the category of neon, which is another, another element. And those are joint carving categories in a way that either being a pen or a podcaster is not. It's true, there are some things that are either pens or podcasters, right? I'm, I'm talking to one of these things right now. Uh, you are either a pen or a podcaster in virtue of being a podcaster. Here is another thing, which is also either a pen or a podcaster. This is because it's a pen. Obviously, you and the pen don't have, you don't have very much in common. That's a kind of gerrymandered category that, in the, uh, as philosophers often think of it, doesn't cut nature at its joints. Okay, so that, that's, that's the first point. And then related to that, philosophers who are fond of the, the joint carving will generally tend to look to science for categories that are joint carving. And the fact that biology heavily traffics in the categories of male and female is a sign. They would say that those two categories are joint carving. But then you raise this other point. Well, you raise two other points. So... One is about words and how to, how to define words. And, of course, many words, including the word female, are ambiguous. We can speak of females in the biological sense. We, we can also speak of female electrical connectors. Right? The, the, uh, that, that's an example of polysemy. The word has two related meanings. It's not a kind of a coincidence that we call some electrical connectors female and other electrical connectors male because there's some vague resemblance to female and male genitalia. And when we have ambiguity or polysemy, multiple meanings, there's still an answer to the question, what does this word mean? 
Uh, it's just that it has multiple answers. It either means this or it means in one sense it means this and in another, uh, in another sense it means this. But, but your most fundamental point, I think, was your, was your last point, which was, yeah, sure, there are numerous categories out in nature which we talk about and numerous categories which we don't talk about. The fact that there is this category of things, as it might be, podcasters or pens doesn't mean that we should either have a word, a single word, which refers to all those things that are either podcasts or pens. And it doesn't mean that we should really care about this category, podcasters or pens, or make it some sort of requirement for getting into the party or something. Only, only individuals who are either podcasters or pens can come to the party. Of course, that would be silly. No one wants to have the entry conditions to the party be like that. So... Sorry, just to go back now to, to male and female, you could, you could accept all these points that I just made about male and female and yet say, well, we should not organise society in a way that recognises this, this distinction. There should not be spaces especially for female people. So that's certainly true, and we'll, we'll get to that. But I think there's a prior question as well, right, which is that, okay, great, so perhaps we can carve nature by its joints by recognizing not only that there are certain things like atoms or neutrons and so on in, in, in the world, and, and that's perhaps some kind of natural kind that we can recognize. So perhaps there's two natural kinds, which is organisms that produce large sex cells and organisms that produce small sex cells. The question, though, is why is that the definition of male and female, particularly because, as I understand it, there could be some circumstances in which an organism that produces large sex cells, that therefore or ordinarily would be an egg-producing biological female, will present, and this is the point made by those who focus on intersex conditions, in a way that in very important ways appear to be male, for example, by having a penis or by having anatomical features that look to us more ordinarily male. Why is it that the question of whether we are large XL producing or small XL producing creatures should be taken to be definitive of our understanding of sex. It may be definitive of something. It may be some important distinction in the world. Why is it obviously the distinction we should use to define biological sex? I mean, it's not perhaps completely obvious, but if you look at the wide range of males and females across the animal and plant kingdoms, it's the only account that makes any sense. If you've got some other account, then let's hear it. Certainly an account in terms of appearance, broadly speaking, or primary or secondary sex characteristics, or you know, having a, um, having a beard or having a penis or whatever, that is not, absolutely not going to work. An asparagus plant, asparagus plants come in male and female varieties, and a male asparagus plant is just as much a male as you are. Right. So unless you want to throw, throw that out and say, no, the biologists are actually confused and there is no sex that I, Yasha Mank, and the asparagus plant share, then being male just can't amount to these superficial features. And of course, biologists themselves recognise that we don't have to get into intersex conditions, which I think is a te te terrible term, very extremely misleading term anyway. Biologists re recognise that some males, for example, 
appear just as females and some females appear just as males. So, for example, the female hyena has a fake penis, clitoris, which is through which it gives birth, which, is, which looks just like a, a penis, and also uh, a fake scrotum. And the female hyena is also very aggressive. So in a way, the female hyena is more male than the male hyena, but the biologists are not confused and think that the females are really the males. They know perfectly well what's going on. These are females that, in certain respects, behave and look just like males. So let's take that point for a moment. I'm going to try and sympathetically excavate the point about intersex conditions, or if you don't like the term intersex conditions, about human beings who are not born into a category in which the primary sex characteristics or the secondary sex characteristics very easily fit into a binary distinction. Because I think the the point here, to which I have some amount of sympathy, is to say, look, in a simple, neat way of looking at the world, there's biological men and there's biological women. And biological men come with all of these kinds of things that are both biologically and socially important, right? They have a penis, they have testosterone, they have all kinds of other things, right? And biological females come with different kinds of characteristics, right? They have a vagina, they have breasts, they, you know, have estrogen uh, in higher quantities. And so, therefore, a natural way of organizing society is around these two categories. And this is just something that flows in a pretty straightforward way from the biology, right? And then there's people who respond to that by saying, well, okay, but there are these people, not only, and we'll get to that, who don't feel like they want to conform with the expectations of it, biological sex, but there's people who actually, in a straightforward way, don't fit into one of those two categories in a straightforward way. Perhaps it's clear whether they're either large egg producing or small egg producing, but they may have genitalia that bear some resemblance both to a penis and to a vagina, or they may have neither, or they may have, when you look at chromosomes, not either two X chromosomes, which typically women have, or one X and one Y chromosome, which typically men have, but they might have XXY chromosomes or XXXY chromosomes and so on. And so therefore, the seemingly simple concept of biology that explains the world to us doesn't explain, doesn't license the simple distinction into two categories for social and political purposes in the kind of way that we might afford. This, I take it, as the argument made by people who focus on this set of conditions. Why is it that we shouldn't buy that argument? Why is it that you're skeptical of that complicating the biological picture in the way that people who make this argument believe it does. So for a start, I, I think what, what you said goes beyond so-called intersex conditions, which are, I, the reason why I think that term is confusing is because I think that the vast majority of intersex conditions are not conditions where the person in question uh, falls outside the categories male or, or, or female. One of the most common intersex conditions is congenital adrenal hyperplasia, where a female fetus gets a higher than usual dose of androgens in the womb, and this can masculinize the genitalia to, uh, to varying degrees. The literature on congenital adrenal hyperplasia is perfectly clear. These are just straightforwardly females. Maybe they're females with somewhat larger than usual clitorises, but that's it. Let me just give you another example. You you mentioned uh, that there are people with uh, XXY sex chromosomes. This is, if I'm remembering correctly, this is Kleinfelter syndrome. And if you have Kleinfelter syndrome, 
various health complications that go along with having Klinefelter syndrome. But essentially, you're just a, a slightly unusual male. You, I mean, you look exactly like a male, but with a few health complications to match. Now, of course, you could um, argue that for some of these conditions, we should make some special social dispensation and, you know, maybe we should have some third restroom for people with certain intersex conditions or we should have some extra option on forms, you know, when you have to tick, well, are you male or female? And there should be some third one. Intersex, actually, some, this, is often, this is often the case these days. All that's fine. I think you're talking about an extremely small number of people and for the most part, I mean, the reason why intersex conditions are sort of largely largely invisible, people with them just ha- happily slot into into one into one category or the other and don't feel the need to have some some third category. Although, interestingly, I mean, this is related to what you call the identity the identity synthesis now being intersex is an identity category. It's a kind of political category. And uh, indeed, on the Progress Pride flag, or one iteration of it, there's a circle to represent the the intersex cons- constituency, and there's an I in the LGBTQIA plus plus alphabet list. Certainly, there has come to be a political connotation to this category, which itself, just from a sort of medical point of view, is extremely, extremely disunified. Because there's a great heterogeneity of conditions under the label of, of intersex. That's right. Yes, exactly. The, yeah, they should really be called, I mean, the official name is disorders of, disorders of sex development. But what about a different res- response, which is that going back to what philosophers call the sorority paradox, right? So some people have a full head of hair. Some people are bald. We are, I think, both in the condition of being somewhere in between. We have some amount of hair. <laughs> I think I'm cl- I'm closer to bald than you are. Yeah, but yeah. Yeah, well, I don't know. But it looks like perhaps you, you shaved more closely more recently. But So there will be many people who, where it's hard to determine whether they're bald or not. It's a, hard, it's a hard case. It's somewhere in between. And it depends a little bit on your proclivities and inclinations, whether you say somebody who has a little bit of hair loss is bald or somebody who's pretty much has no hair, but they have a few hairs, perhaps they're not bald, right? We can have those arguments. But that, of course, doesn't mean that the categories of being bald or having a full head of hair are incoherent. The perfectly coherent categories that explain an important element of a world, even if some people don't easily fit into them. So I've always wondered whether that is a way to accommodate the intersex point, which I think does have some amount of real force, but to show why that shouldn't make us throw out the biological categories of male and female. Almost everything is vague in the bald sense. That includes the category podcaster. You can have a sorority series for podcasters. You can have a sorority series for books, a sorority series for almost anything you want, where the guy in the middle, well, is he a podcaster or not? You want to say, well, he's not definitely a podcaster, but he's not definitely not a podcaster. Okay, and the very same thing goes for male and female as well. So the easiest case is just to think of an animal that actually changes sex in its lifetime. So take the fabled clownfish, they're all born male. And under some conditions, a male can change, literally change sex from male to female. And this is a, this involves 
the gonads that produce the small sex cells degenerating and the ovaries that produce the large sex cells growing. Now, this transition from male to female takes time, and there will be a point at which you want to say, well, it's not clear what sex the animal is now. It's not, it's not definitely male, it's not definitely not male, it's not definitely female, it's not definitely not female. So I totally grant the point the categories male and female are, are vague, just as the category bald is vague. However, I don't think that uh, most of these so-called intersex conditions are conditions where it's vague or unclear or indeterminate what sex the person is. So the, if you take uh, Kleinfelter syndrome, he, these people are un, unquestionably male. There's no, there's like, there's no literature which suggests that they aren't male. Similarly with, with uh, congenital uh, adrenal hyperplasia. These, sorry, XX people with congenital adrenal, adrenal hyperplasia, I should, I, I should say. These people are clearly female. They're clearly female, but they're somewhat masculinized females. There's like, there's nothing, there should be nothing odd about the idea of a, of a masculinized female. We've discussed the concept of biological sex at, at good length now. Do you believe that the concept of gender is nevertheless useful? And broadly speaking, the way I understand it is to say that uh, there's biological sex. And first of all, biological sex has historically come with a certain set of gendered expectations, which is to say that depending on the society, there's been assumptions about this is how men act and this is how men should act. And this is how women act and how women should act. And even before you get to anything in the trans discussion, there's a, a useful concept of gender to say, hey, hang on a second. Do, you, do we want to have those expectations? Is it true that there's uh, you know, something bad or unnatural about men crying? Perhaps if men were empowered to cry more often, that would make society better and happier, right? Is it true that women are really made to sit in the kitchen and to be domestic? Perhaps they actually have a lot to contribute to the workplace, right? And so in the first instance, I take it that the concept of gender was used to critique the expectations that have historically come with a particular belonging in a particular sex category. And that surely sounds like a useful concept. Then I guess in a second step, there's then the idea that, well, look, perhaps we do have some amount of useful gender expectations that correlate with biological sex. And here you can see how some of the trans discourse actually in an odd way can be a little bit traditionalist. But if we're comfortable with that, if it's fine to have certain sets of expectations with what it is to be a man and what it is to be a woman for how you should behave, then perhaps there's certain cat members of the category of biological males who prefer to live in society in keeping with the expectations that have historically being applied to women. And so those may, in our parlance, be trans people, right? They, um, one way of understanding them is to say they are biological males who, for whatever reason, uh, whether that's an innate, inborn thing or whether, that's, uh, whether it is not, believe that they would rather put on dresses and uh, speak in a more feminine way and whatever set of expectations our society happens to have about what it is to act as a biological female. What do you make of that notion of gender and that justification for at least the thin notion of what it would be to be transgender and perhaps to respect that choice? Okay, so just to start with gender. So 
the original sex-gender distinction was made by the UCLA psychiatrist Robert Stoller in 1968, who wrote a famous book called Sex and, Sex and Gender. And in Stoller's hands, the notion of gender didn't play the role that you mentioned. It, it, it wasn't intended as part of some critique of gender norms or gender stereotypes or, or anything like that. Stoller defined gender as the amount of masculinity or femininity found in a person, and which was, if you think about it for a bit, it's it's a pretty, it's a pretty terrible definition. It, it also it renders the question, "What gender are you?" somewhat nonsensical. But Stoller's distinction was was picked up by, in particular, the feminist sociologist, British sociologist Anne Oakley in the in the 1970s, and a lot of second wave feminists ran with that distinction, modifying it a lot along the way. And as you said, in one version of, of, of the distinction, it's between sex on the one hand and uh, sex typed social roles or sex-typed social expectations or sex-typed norms on the other. There's the distinction between male and female on the one hand and how males and females actually behave in a particular society, how they're expected to behave in a particular society, and so on. And this of, course, this, of course, is a genuine distinction. There really is a distinction between being a female on the one hand and behaving in a certain culturally circumscribed way on the other or being subject to a set of norms that apply only to female people. Now, I think these are all useful distinctions. I mean, they're kind of obvious distinctions if you think about them. It's not some like great discovery that there is such a distinction. You can find such distinctions back in the ancient philosophers, or you know, Plato, for example, even though, they, of course, they didn't use the word gender to mark that distinction. Now, I think that because gender has an, another very common meaning, actually, this goes back to your... Uh, discussion of words and their, and their meanings, it has another common meaning, namely as a synonym for sex. It's just incredibly confusing to draw this distinction between sex and sex-typed norms or sex-typed social roles using the word gender. It just leads to no end of confusion. And gender also has other meanings as well within uh, within philosophy and, and gender... So just to be amply clear about this, what you're saying is that in some context, a clinician may ask you, what's your gender? And historically, at least until about 10 years ago, what we probably would have meant is, are you a biological male or are you a biological female, right? And then in other contexts, we use the concept of gender to say, to play with dolls historically has been a female gendered activity, right? And, and that really refers to something else. Sure, although, well, but the way you said it doesn't really rely on some other, some other sense of, of gender. You can just put it much more straight, straightforwardly by saying, yes, play, playing, playing with dolls is a, if we're talking about children, a female typical activity, um, and it's also expected of females that they that they play with dolls. Or maybe you know, maybe back in the day, a girl who didn't play with dolls was uh, regarded as 
somewhat abnormal and a transgressor and this behaviour should be corrected because that's what girls really ought to play with. They shouldn't play with Meccano sets or trucks, but dolls in, in, instead. You can say all that without even using the word gender. So one way of putting a point is that in the word gender norms, you could actually just substitute it with sex norms and it would mean much the same thing. Yeah, that, that is exactly right. I mean, I do think the word, I mean, the reason why the word gender came to mean sex is that it usefully disambiguates sex. So sex itself, just like numerous other words, is ambiguous, of course, between, between the intercourse sense and the male and female sense. And these days, of course, we, we, we talk about sexual intercourse um, all the time, 24-7, <laughs> and we do that using the word sex. So it's very useful to have another word that means male or female so we don't get, we don't get confused. And that, that explains why gender became a very popular replacement for sex in the male or, in the male or female sense. And that is not going away. So given that there is this constant pressure to use gender to mean, to mean male or female, introducing or stipulating another sense of gender to mean sex-type social norms or masculinity and femininity or gender identity, that's another sense of the word gender, it just piles confusion upon confusion. The first thing you ought to ask when reading anything that's written about sex and gender, which just throws around the word gender, is what on earth do the authors mean by the word gender? And it's often extremely unclear. In fact, in the, in the work of Judith Butler, it is notoriously unclear what she means by gender. So what about, though, the kind of core sense of this that some of the members of the trans movement would, would, would point towards, which does seem to have obvious first order plausibility, right? Which is to say that, uh, let's use the term sex norms, right? There are certain norms associated with your biological sex in the United States, even in 2024. And some people don't want to live in accordance with those sex norms, right? Even though they are biologically male, they prefer to wear dresses and high heels and to, you know, have painted fingernails and uh, they prefer to speak in a more high-pitched voice and whatever else we would ordinarily associate with biological females in our culture. And that is a helpful distinction to make right, between the biological sex and their preference as to how they want to lead lives. And therefore, to the extent possible, and we can go on to the debate about when that is possible and when perhaps it is not possible, when there's real trade-offs involved, we should treat them with respect and allow them to do that. They prefer to wear dresses and to speak in a high-pitched voice and um, to uh, live lives as though they were biological women in a liberal society in which uh, we believe that people are self-determining and in which we hold something like the harm principle, you should say, well, why on earth not? You do you. So that far, do you, do, do you agree? Oh, no, I, I completely agree. Of course, you mentioned Mill's harm principle, which is like extremely relevant because, of course, there are some some tricky cases in, in uh, involving males where the harm principle does seem relevant. But perhaps another dis distinction w would be useful. Of course, some it, let's just think about about children for the moment. Forget adults. Of course, some male children for whatever reason, are, if you like, naturally very feminine. And uh, this is 
highly correlated with growing up to be a gay man. And, of course, you can be a very feminine, fingernail-painting, high-pitched male who is perfectly happy being a male and identifies as a man and just grows up to be this very feminine man. So there's a distinction between the very feminine man and a natal male who suffers extreme distress, gender dysphoria, at his sexed body, and at some point transitions, perhaps with the the help of surgery uh, or hormones, to live as a woman. So these are two, two very different outcomes for the young male child who's very feminine from the get-go. And yeah, with, with respect to the, the issue of whether this should be allowed or tolerated or respected or whatever, yeah, I'm completely on, completely on board with that. As is, I think, everyone, or practically everyone, apart from certain reactionary people who think that gender transition should be banned across the board. Of course, the, the really difficult hot-button issues concern the treatment of gender dysphoric youth, whether, for example, they should be given, uh, given puberty blockers. This was a, a huge issue in, in the UK, which ultimately led to the ending of the Gender Identity Development Service in, in, in the UK. It was closed down partly due to various scandals involving, uh, involving puberty blockers. So that's one, that's one issue. And then, of course, another issue is now turning to adults, whether you allow natal males who've gone through a male puberty but who live as women to compete in the female sporting category, for example, or you allow them to go into rape crisis centres just like any other, just like any natal female. Uh, these are, are not trivial issues that I, I don't think they can be, you know, brushed aside. There are uh, there are serious serious questions here. So let's start with the first set of these questions, perhaps. So, you know, I suppose I see two complications here. One is that what we want is a society in which people are empowered to make life choices that are going to serve them well and make them happy and have a worthwhile life. And certainly overcoming a constraining binary gender, or if you prefer sex norms, which say that if you're born into this category, you must act this way. And if not, there's something defective about you and we're going to socially shame you is a, a terrible and very violent thing that we want to overcome. Of course, the question is how best to overcome that. And you might think the best way to overcome that is either allowing people to transition to live in accordance with the sex norms that don't correspond to their biological sex. Or you might say it is allowing people to present however they wish on a much broader range of forms of expression. And to some extent, and I think this is one concern that you hear from some gay men and some lesbian women, this sort of transgender, uh, the particular form of a transgender movement has taken can cut against that. So that you're telling that young effeminate boy that not that it is fine to be a boy and be effeminate. There have uh, always been men who are more effeminate and that's one possible way of being a man. But rather, if you're effeminate, if you prefer to play with dolls, then you must truly be a girl or a woman and you must 
transition. So, so that's one kind of concern. I guess the answer to that seems relatively straightforward, which is that people should be able to make either choice, but we shouldn't correct in the direction of then pressuring those effeminate boys to believe that they must truly be girls, when perhaps in some cases that may not be the case. The second set of complications, as you pointed out, is about biological transition, uh, in particular in, in younger people. So perhaps you can help us puzzle through that a little bit. What was the concern with the Travistock Clinic in England run by the National Health Service that got it closed down? Why is it that some people who don't see themselves as reactionaries have genuine concerns about uh, the way in which younger children or teenagers are giving puberty blockers or go through uh, transitions in the United States today? There's a great book about the closure of the Tavistock Clinic and the events leading up to it by the journalist Hannah Barnes called called Time to Think, which I, which I thoroughly recommend. I'm probably not going to get all the details exactly right, but some years ago in the UK, a case for judicial review was brought by um, a woman called Kira Bell, who was treated, I guess, by the Tavistock, given testosterone, she had a double mastectomy, and then she uh, decided that all, all this was a was a big mistake. She um, she wasn't transgender at all, or she shouldn't have been transitioned. And that I think opened the floodgates somewhat, and the Tavistock's practices began to be more carefully scrutinised. And they had adopted the so-called Dutch protocol for treating juveniles with with gender dysphoria which was started to be developed in in the 90s and involved giving so-called puberty blockers very early in uh, puberty uh, around Tanner stage 2 which halt halt puberty and the original thought was that these drugs would function as a pause button they would allow in the title of Hannah Barnes' book, Time to Think. Right, hence the book is called Time to Think. Yeah, right, right. But then it turned out, perhaps not surprisingly in, 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 in retrospect, that puberty blockers seemed to be a fast-forward button rather than a pause button. And something like 95% of children put on puberty blockers, I think these are the Tavistock's own figures, went on to take cross-sex hormones and to and to medically transition. So that's one issue. And then another issue is just the the health impacts of, of puberty blockers themselves and whether they whether they actually help with kids' mental health. There's really not very much evidence that they're particularly effective in that regard. And of course this is an extremely serious issue because this is just a general point. It has nothing to do with the transgender issues specifically. All else equal, you want to avoid contact with the healthcare system as much as possible. Especially you, you don't want to go anywhere near a surgeon if you can possibly help it. So, again, this has got nothing to do in, in particular with, with trans issues. But if all else is equal... You can choose the path of not having surgery and hormones, which have like enormous 
health complications, then that's what you should do. So the first line of treatment should really be to encourage people to be comfortable living in their own sex bodies rather than giving them puberty blockers, which just seems to speed up the process of medical transition, in which case you end up as a, as a, lifelong, as a lifelong medical patient. Of course, the first line of treatment doesn't work and the dysphoria persists into adulthood and you find you just can't live in your natal sex, then sure, go ahead and transition. But it does seem to be remarkably irresponsible, in my view, to treat medical transitioning for children as just some regular piece of medical care with, with, with clear benefits um, whereas it's really very experimental and the evidence base for it is uh, severely lacking. To put it even, perhaps in a milder way, but, but which perhaps would be the way that I would put it, in any medical treatment, you want to understand the trade-offs, right? I mean, you take aspirin and you have the indication of aspirin, what it is that aspirin allows you to do, and you have a long list of possible side effects of aspirin, and you are supposed to weigh those two against each other. And of course, sometimes it makes sense to pop aspirin, but you should think about the trade-off before you do. I think one of the things that I found striking in the debate about this is the unwillingness to acknowledge that there's a difficult trade-off here. And on the one hand, I agree that by all accounts, there are people who suffer from terrible gender dysphoria, who suffer from being in the body uh, they are born into, who feel that this somehow is unbearable, and that at least in some cases, that seems to lift after they transition uh, with surgery and other things. And so that's the prima facie case for allowing people to undergo those treatments in general and perhaps even at a young age. Now, of course, there's the arguments on the other side, the, the trade-off that you have to look at as well, which includes things like the fact that many of these people become infertile and that this is a very difficult thing to make decisions about when you're 15 or 16. I certainly, I think, at that age would afford either of one children, but you know that is the sort of thing that one might change uh, one's mind about over the course of uh, adulthood. Secondly, that there seem to be some serious concerns, for example, about the potential loss of bone density, because it is when going through puberty that uh, you have a great increase in bone density and so on, and so there's just some questions about what the health of some of these people are going to be when they're 70 or 80 years old, whether they're going to be significantly weakened by this, much more uh, subject to dangerous uh, injuries like breaking the hips and, and other kinds of things, right? And then third, of course, there are the cases like Kira Bell, whose story we actually published in Persuasion in her voice. It was the first place where she uh, published that, who come to regret transitioning. And there is a very heated, very complicated debate about uh, how high the rates of detransition are. But again, what concerns me is a climate in which instead of wanting to understand this, it is rendered taboo. And what I don't understand about this, where I have to say that I really um, become very saddened, is that all of this is treated as in some way being anti-trans. But you know, if you're concerned about whether people undergoing these medical treatments might come to regret not being able to have children, if you worry about what the long-term health is going to be at the age of 80 or 70 or 60, if you worry that some of them may come to regret that intervention, that is, in fact, a concern for those 
specific individuals. So the idea that this somehow is, as is often implied in overblown rhetoric, you know, connected with a, with a desire that these people not exist or that the interests not be counted or anything like that is, I think, just fundamentally wrong, but maybe true of certain people in this debate, but it's certainly not true of most of the people who have these concerns, including clinicians who have worked with these populations for a very long time, who were attracted to this field because they had a lot of empathy for them, but who came to worry that they perhaps in certain cases are doing more harm and they're doing good. Yes, yes, I think that's exactly right. And yeah, you, you raised a very important point about, uh, about fertility and consent, which I, which I forgot to mention. I mean, sometimes you get the, the impression from the more overheated rhetoric that sceptics about youth gender medicine are rather like sceptics about vaccines, um, you know, their, their, their positions are just as implausible as someone who, let's say, was very sceptical about the, about the measles vaccine in, in, I think, which was introduced in, in 1963. So measles, before the vaccine came along, killed thousands and thousands of children every year. And I think it was that disease was actually eliminated in the US in 2000. And sometimes... There's a phrase that often gets flung around, namely that gender-affirming care is life-saving treatment. And so the opponents are, are portrayed as just as people who are, in effect, sceptical of the measles vaccine. Here is this treatment which saves many, many lives a year, and for some perverse reason, you bigots are, are against it. But this is there's no evidence whatsoever that this treatment is is life-saving. It may well be beneficial in in some cases, but obviously before the puberty blocker Dutch protocol came along, there's no, there's no evidence that hundreds or thousands of children were committing suicide or dying prematurely through lack of gender-affirming treatment. So yeah, you're absolutely right that this is uh, a complicated matter of trade-offs, complicated uh, ethical issues about about consent. It's exactly the sort of topic that philosophers should be interested in. So one would have expected a lively debate on these ethical issues in the philosophy journals. But at least to date, there is no such debate because of the generally intolerant attitude that prevails in philosophy at the moment towards people with heterodox, if you like, views on sex and gender. On a complete side note, I have in fact had measles and I've had measles in the United States and I got it through the vaccine. Oh, really? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Something that happens once in 100,000 cases because I believe the measles vaccine is in fact a live virus. You end up getting a less severe case of it. But I had it, I took the MMR vaccine. I think I needed it to enroll in my graduate program or something like that. My mother takes terrible records, so she didn't have a record of whether or not I'd had these vaccines as a kid for me to prove to be able to enroll. And I walked and I was the most tired I'd been in my life. I mean, so dragging myself from the library to home while I was, this was coming on was, was really an experience. And I went to a doctor's office in Brooklyn of an older black lady who was running the doctor's practice. And I walked in and she just pointed at me and laughed loudly. And she said, you got the measles. I haven't seen one of those in 20 years. <laughs> 
it. So I uh, spent a couple of days uh, watching Mad Men and feeling like a biological bomb, and then I was fine. But on this unlikely side note, I think there's one last topic that we haven't covered, which is the question of sports. How do we puzzle through this? On the one hand, we have established the general presumption that if people want to live in accordance with the norms of a particular kind of gender, then they should be able to do that. And that means they'd rather play on the women's team than the men's team. In principle, there shouldn't be a problem. The worry, of course, is that people who have gone through male puberty, who have gone through puberty as biological males with the levels of testosterone that this involves, would end up having a competitive advantage over biological women in many, or perhaps in, in most, in virtually all sports. So how do we resolve this tension or this trade-off? That is an excellent question. Maybe I should say well, just one thing. First of all, I mean, you already alluded to, to it with male puberty. This has got nothing to do with some anti-transgender prejudice as at the case of trans men, that is natal females who take testosterone and transition to live as men, shows they, they have not gone through male puberty. They pose no competitive threat to natal males competing in athletic categories. So there should be no issue, and indeed, indeed there is no issue, about whether they can play on the men's team. Go right ahead. So if the position were symmetrical for trans women, there would be absolutely no issue. But it isn't symmetrical because male puberty does give you, through testosterone, as you said, a considerable athletic advantage. Now, sometimes people say, oh, yeah, but, you know, what about Michael Phelps? He's... Uh, an exceptional male in certain respects. You know, we don't ban him from from swimming just because, I don't know, he has exceptionally low levels of lactic acid or large feet or something like or something like that. And that's true, but Michael Phelps is a developmentally ordinary male. There's nothing qualitatively different about him compared to other males. Whereas the male and female body are really quite different. The University of Penn swimmer Leah Thomas is an example. They really are quite different from females. Even like setting aside abstract issues about fairness or whatever, just as a practical matter, given that there are so few of these people and given that they make, as it were, a huge splash when they do win and people get really annoyed and lots of women complain and say, gosh, you know, why can't we just have a category for, for females? Why can't we just celebrate the female body? Given all that, I, I think it's like perfectly reasonable to exclude natal males who've gone through male puberty from, from the female category. There's an easy fix, which is just to have just turn the male category into, or the, the category for men, into an open category. And then there's no, there should be no presumption that if you enter the open category, you live life as a man. It's perfectly consistent with entering the, the open category that you live life as a woman. And so your suggestion is that there would be one category that is the general open category, 
in which both biological females, biological males, and biological males who have transitioned to female are open to compete. And then there's a, a second category, which would be reserved for biological females. Yeah, the female-bodied category, yes, that's right. I, that, that seems to be the most straightforward way of... I mean, of course, you know, you can understand why someone who lives life as a woman would not want to compete in the category that is explicitly labelled for men. Um, even though this person may be literally, and indeed on, in, on my view is literally a man, nonetheless, you could see how uh, this is a little bit jarring, but you can relabel the category and open one and uh, allow anyone in. One thing that I find interesting in this debate, well, two points. First of all, I think, to me, it's just looking through this whole set of complicated questions as trade-offs just makes it so much easier, right? So for me, there's a very clear distinction between highly competitive sports and the Sunday League, right? And there's a distinction of, for obvious biological reasons, between young kids and kids who've undergone puberty, right? When you're talking about eight or 10-year-olds, if a boy wants to be on the girls' team, let the boy be on the girls' team because he hasn't undergone puberty, he probably doesn't have a particular advantage anyway. When you're talking about a non-competitive league where people's skill levels are so all over the place that the fact of having undergone male puberty makes less of a difference because nobody is at the top end of what athletes can achieve in any case. Sure, let it be open. Perhaps when it's uh, a contact sport like rugby or something like that, where there's higher danger of injuries and so on, you might apply different rules. But these are all situations in which you can actually have relatively pragmatic trade-offs that try to be respectful to the different sets of interests at hand. The reason why I think some uh, smart and well-intentioned people are reluctant to see the problem with a competition at the highest levels is actually a background belief. It has nothing to do with trans people, but that is, I think, quite widespread in our society. And that is the denial of significant athletic differences between men and women. I just think that people are not nearly as aware as they might be of the difference in top performance between different categories. So, for example, in you know track and field and sprint, the strongest high schoolers in the United States are roughly at the level of the best women in the world. In tennis, we've seen in formal matches, the most distinguished women lose to the 300 seed, the 400 seed on the men's tour. But I think because there's been rightfully an emphasis on gender equality and a reluctance to be explicit about this, people then go on to say, well, how much of a problem could this possibly pose? Because they really don't understand to what extent allowing people who've undergone male puberty to compete in the women's category would quickly allow those people to dominate those categories. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, this is a this is a hangover, I think, from a lot of second wave feminism, which tended to seriously downplay the differences between males and females. I mean, particularly at the psychological level, but also at the purely purely physiological level. I mean, Anne Fausto Sterling once suggested that the gap in male and female athletic performance could be closed by by proper nutrition. Her idea was that, well, you know, maybe girls aren't really eating enough. And so if we if we fed them properly, then they then they'd catch up 
to boys. This is just totally wrong. And actually what, what happens is completely the reverse, that under conditions of proper nutrition, the gap, the physical gap between males and females gets wider. It doesn't get narrower. And what you said about trade-offs is, I think, exactly right. So you can find many arguments which are not trade-off arguments at all. So people say things like, well, look, if transgender women are literally women, then of course they should compete in the woman's category. It is, after all, the woman's category. And then you can find people on the other side saying, well, transgender women are not literally women. Therefore, of course, they should not compete in the woman's category. So that's not just some, that's not a trade, we're not trading anything off. This just seems, seems to be a sort of straightforward syllogism. But it's wrong in both cases. So the whole thing should be framed as one of, one of trade-offs, as you, as you said. Finally, let me just understand one thing, which is, A, you have an interesting philosophical contribution to make, but much of a conversation ended up feeling less philosophical, or at least I wasn't always able to see sort of where the line goes from the philosophical insights to these takeaways. So to what extent do these questions actually hinge on philosophy, and to what extent do they hinge on simply take into account the interests of different people in a reasonable way and having a realistic view of how social institutions work. And then secondly, I have to say that after all of this conversation, I'm a little bit baffled about what is so controversial about this book. So why is it and what is it in this conversation that is supposed to have been uh, so unserious or so concerning? It, just on the question of how much of this is philosophy and how much isn't, I mean, I think these questions of disciplinary boundaries are generally quite boring, you know, what is philosophy and what isn't? Is this question really philosophy or not? That is not typically a very interesting question. However, there there are some questions which seem to be recognisably philosophical, which I do treat in the book. For example, what is a woman? After all, this, you know, what is X question goes back to Plato, what is justice, what is truth, what is knowledge, and so on. As far as I know, Plato or Socrates never asked, what is a woman? But it does seem to be, insofar as you have an intuitive handle on what a philosophical question is, that seems to be a philosophical question. But you're right that a lot of the book, I don't think, really counts as, as philosophy. Well, let me reframe the question because I'm less interested in sort of the disciplinary boundary policing, right? I'm not a kind of uh, on a promotion committee in philosophy, which is deciding whether, you know, to give you a nicer office or something, right? But rather sort of a question is, to what extent does what we should do about trans questions actually turn on these fundamental philosophical questions? And to what extent will we actually come up with better, more humane, more sensible approaches and solutions by ignoring some of those questions where somebody's going to say, trans women are just women, we must be treated exactly the same in all circumstances. And other people are going to say, no, we're not women, and therefore we should not accommodate them. And just say, how do we build a society in which we pe treat people fairly and respectfully? And what does that mean if we want to take the competing interests and concerns of everybody into account? So is getting away from some of those philosophical questions actually a better guide to what to do on this difficult issue? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, in a way, perhaps that's one of the morals of the book. So even though we've talked about social and political issues, 
including youth gender medicine and who should compete in what sporting category. That is not what the book is about by design. I, I wanted to decouple the social and political issues, questions about what we should do, what policies we should adopt, from the more descriptive, factual questions, what is a woman, what is gender identity, do we all have gender identities, what are the differences between human males and females, there's even a chapter on patriarchy and what explains the persistence of patriarchy throughout history. And then there's a, a chapter that we didn't actually touch on at the very end about identity and, uh, and the true self. And there are all these questions, the answers to which are often taken to be highly relevant to the social and political issues. And I suppose one moral of the book is that there's really no straight line from the answers to these questions to policy. So there's no straight line in particular from answers to questions about what a woman is to policies about who should be allowed to compete in what sporting categories. But the the more factual descriptive questions are I think just fascinating in themselves. Everyone is fascinated by these by these issues. And so they certainly deserve an entire book, but the book itself doesn't pretend to settle the social and political questions, insofar as it bears on them, it's to suggest that there's less of a connection between the answers to these factual questions and questions about policy than is often assumed. Alex Byrne, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Pleasure. Thanks very much. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. <laughs> <laughs>